So we are, of course, at the end of our Roman series tonight, uh, dealing with chapter 16, the last chapter in that book. This chapter will conclude Paul's most famous and striking letter. Uh, he's expounded in the early chapters of this book that we explored uh, well, quite a long time ago now, but the powerful theological core of the gospel message, the magnificent grace of God and the saving act of Christ's death and resurrection. He's moved on to address the actions he hopes will come out of this knowledge and should show in the life of those changed by this miracle, the obedience and the faithfulness of those who love God. And now in this final chapter comes the greatest challenge for the modern reader. Dozens of weird ancient names. Greek names and Grecoized Latin names like Ampliatus and Trifosa and Trifina. 17 of these 27 verses in this chapter are greetings to or greetings from people with weird ancient names. Mostly of people we know almost nothing about, mostly of people we can know almost nothing about. And I make a big deal about this because greeting lists like this go in the same category as, uh, for example, the genealogies you find in a, in a class of scripture I call namey bits. Uh, after marveling at Paul's faith and his reasoning in the previous chapters, suddenly we get this dull, regulated list of salutations with no more relevance to us than Santa's reindeer roll call. On Apollos, on Hermas, on Hermes and Rufus, on Julia and Nereus and Asyncritus. Such namey bits are often a hazard to the reader because we tend to read the first couple and then our eyes glaze over and then we scroll down until we find a bit with no names and then we pick up from there. But nestled in the heart of this pack of names is a heartsick warning from Paul. Paul, our church maker extraordinaire about the dangers that could beset the church. And while we may never know the details about a lot of the people named here, this chapter gives a snapshot of the ancient church in its early bloom. It's tied together by God-fearing workers in Christ who are bound together by love for one another and who ache to see one another again. So there is a structure here, and so we have a, a, a framework to move through. But I think it's good to do a little technical housekeeping before we dive right into the text. So let's start with that. We know, for example, that Paul is, is writing or dictating uh, this letter from the church of Corinth. This will become important later on. The last chapter told us that he had not yet gone to the Roman church because he felt his place was primarily in frontier mission where they had no one going to them yet. But he intends to come and see them soon. So some commentators have suggested that this large collection of personalized greetings to a church he's never been to suggests that maybe this was added content that Paul hadn't actually been there and this was for the benefit of someone else receiving the letter secondhand. I think that's a failure of imagination. It's not impossible for Paul to have known these people or known this many people. It just reflects the kind of church we could expect to see in the ancient world, one that did a lot of planting. These are people Paul has known from his other mission adventures or maybe just known some by reputation for what they've done before he's ever met them and he's just commending them from distance. I see no real compelling reason though to think this is anything other than Paul's word. And while we're on textual matters, if you're using the NIV like I did, you might notice uh, that verses 23 and 25 are inappropriately close together and we are awkwardly lacking a verse 24. 
This is because some manuscripts have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you there, which is probably an accidental or perhaps deliberate repeat of verse 20. This would make it what we call an inclusio when we have a repeat. It's like a bracket around a part of the scripture that's meant to draw our attention. In this case, it would be drawing our attention to this part of the scripture where the Corinthians are all leaping in to add their names to communicate their wishes to the Romans. Now, we don't know why, but in most manuscripts, that little verse 24 is not actually there. It may have first been added by accident, maybe as someone's later um, copyist's intended inclusio to draw attention to those greetings. Either way, its addition or loss does not actually detract from the text itself and its meaning. So incidentally, if you've ever been tempted to worry about error in God's words, uh, if you've ever heard a startling number saying that there have been X number of uh, conflicts in scriptural documents, this is the kind of trivial conflict that they talk about. It's almost always when a copyist has just had a brain fart and missed a vowel um, or just repeated a line, and it never actually ruins the integrity of Scripture. God is good, and the Holy Spirit protects his word. So now that we've done our housekeeping, we can look at the letter's entirety. I said it has a structure, and that's true. Briefly put, we begin with two verses of commendation to Phoebe, who is apparently enclosed with the letter, or at least traveling with it, and that's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 to 16 are greetings from uh, greetings to the Roman church. They're part of a, what I'm calling a greeting sandwich, more specifically the top part of the bun. The filling is this warning about false preachers, verses 12, um, 17 to 20. And the other half of the bun of the greeting sandwich are the greetings from the Corinthian church. This sandwich is actually one of these inclusios. It's a conspicuous pairing of things outside of another thing. It would be more natural to put all of the greetings to and all of the greetings from immediately next to each other. The fact that they don't and that they surround something is meant to draw attention to that thing in the middle. And so we'll pay extra attention to Paul's warning when we get there. And the chapter finishes with Paul's benediction from verses 25 to 27. It wraps up Paul's message that he's been offering through the whole letter about the gospel of Christ foretold in the Hebrew scriptures and now extended to free all the Gentiles. But let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and begin with the namey bits and then work our way through. Starting with verses one and two. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancreia, or Chencre if you prefer. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Now, Sencre, or Shenkreia, or however we choose to pronounce this, was a port city near Corinth. This is part of the reason we understand that Paul was writing from Corinth. It seems that she, Phoebe, volunteered to go and join the Roman church, or at least visit. And so Paul asks her to carry this letter with her. And he writes her this little reference as part of that. He identifies her as our sister or a, or, and a diakonos or deacon. Now calling her our sister gives us no great mysteries here. She's a fellow believer, a fellow member of the body of Christ. The Roman Christians, indeed all Christians, have an obligation to open their hearts and take her in because she is part of that family. 
And I think all Christians, even now, get to benefit of feeling that international familial bond to one another. For example, uh, something like 120,000 American Christians fundraised recently to relocate 149 Iraqi Christian refugees out of the murderous grip of ISIS and into relatively friendly nearby Slovakia. Now, when the world hears this, that Christians have pulled their money to get Christians out of harm's way, they are angry. How dare these people show preference to Christian refugees over Muslim refugees or over other refugees? They're all people, aren't they? I mean, what is this bigoted nonsense? But when an Australian church hears this, we kind of rejoice. Because though we're not directly connected to either the American church that displayed the generosity or the Iraqi Christians who were the recipients of this kindness, for us, this is a story of our family, our brothers and sisters, reaching out and delivering another part of our family from danger. And so we praise God. We do not have to wait until the end of days to feel connected to other believers. This is the invisible church, this greater family of all believers, and we shouldn't feel ashamed to know that a long-suffering part of that family might actually get a little bit of peace. And so also for Phoebe, settling among the Romans who were to accept her as their own. She is not only their sister, but also a deacon. Now, this is a term that scholars have gone back and forth on what precisely this implies. Naturally, the ancient church did not necessarily use the word deacon in the same way we might today. Did Phoebe hold a church office? What does this mean for women in ministry? The passage doesn't tell us enough to know, and going off down a garden path about female pastors for or against would be a distraction here. What is true is that she was a hard worker in Christ, an enormous boon to those Christians who knew her, and especially to Paul, and he commends her and her hard work for that reason. Now we hit verse three and the namey bits in earnest. Now it's hard for me to understand that the Christians who were born a couple of years after me and then on have no recollection of a world without the internet, without instant email communication and the ability to connect with people anywhere in the world at the drop of a hat. This kind of new connectivity is incredible and it's done incredible things for the kingdom. Now our missionaries can Skype chat with their families back in the homeland. They can see their churches face to face even when they are very far away. That's a pretty amazing gift. Getting in contact with the people you love is so trivially easy now that we're greatly distressed if we can't do it for a day or two. Only the youngest Christians can't remember when everyone didn't have their own phone from a young age. Most of us can remember when international calls were very expensive and very rarely done. Maybe a tiny few of us can remember when having a phone in the house at all was a novelty that not everyone had. I'm pretty sure, though, I'm safe in saying that we're all used to a world where mail is a thing, where you can reasonably be assured that you can write something down and have it delivered in a reasonable time frame. This is not a benefit they necessarily had in the ancient world. In our time, when our family or friends move away for some reason, we celebrate, we congratulate, and then we get our hooks in them before they go. You're moving away to Norway for business? 
Call me every week, email me, send me a text as soon as you land, give me some postcards so I know you're alive. In 50 AD, oh, you're moving to Rome to join the Guild of Goldsmiths? So long, son, probably forever. If your son pulled up roots and moved to Rome, you had no expectation of necessarily having reliable communication with them from that point on. Hopefully, he'd come back to visit. If not, you're really relying on the kindness of strangers to help you out. The best you could do is find someone who was also going to Rome, a city of over a million people, then ask that traveler, pretty please, could they take this letter and a Tupperware container full of mini quiches and deliver it to a goldsmith who looks kind of like this, but younger. <laughs> so a greeting in a letter in the ancient world was not trivial. This is a real outpouring of Paul's heart. At their most distant, these greetings, some of them might be people Paul admires but hasn't met, but wants to acknowledge the things they've done. Greet Apollos, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. At their most intimate, they're genuinely touching flashes of insight into the normally hidden day-to-day -day life of Paul. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. I hope Rufus's mum wasn't a crier. That may have set her off. She might have reasonably expected she would never hear from Paul again or that he wouldn't remember her outside of blurry, warm memories of a woman who helped him out. But he remembers her all right. I suspect it had something to do with mini quiches. Interestingly, there are five women listed here as working or being co-workers or hard workers. Priscilla, Persis, Mary, Tryphena, and Tryphosa. And only two men denoted for their excellent work or as co-workers, Aquila and Urbanus. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about how the division of labor may or may not have changed over the years. Verse 16 ends this greeting to section with Paul's assurance that all the churches greet them back and that they should greet one another with a holy kiss. The Greek for which I am given to understand reads XO, 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 smiley face emoji. In verse 21, the Corinthian Christians will add their greetings as well. I like to imagine Timothy and Lucius and Jason and Sosipatera crowding around the shoulders of Tertius as he's trying to write and uh, debating on the best and classiest way they can make their one-line greeting. Do they send warm wishes or best wishes? Greetings in Christ or is that kind of leaning into it too much? Evidently, they settled on just a simple, elegant greeting, nice and minimalist. Now, we'll never know till kingdom come who most of these people really were. But we can tell plainly from the words that the Holy Spirit has given to us, inspired words of scripture, that they love each other tremendously. They have a true familial bond in their home church and for the broader church following after Christ. They knew then, like we know now, that the foundation of church is love for one another. But Paul knew, as we know now, that a church may have a loving foundation but lose its doctrine, its real understanding of the gospel and the teaching of the truth. And if that happens, a church may stand but be emptied of its purpose. And more likely than that, a church whose teaching suffers usually develops a rift between those who accept the new teaching or the false teaching and those who reject it. 
and both halves of that community suffer terribly for such a rip through their congregation. And so nestled in between the greetings to and the greetings from comes Paul's caution to the church of Rome out of fear for just such a rip. Verses 17 to 19. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Now, we mentioned that Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. Now, the next sermon series we'll be doing at Sunnybank is, in fact, going through 1 Corinthians. So we'll get to see in detail what exactly Paul was encountering in Corinth and the problems he had to go through. But for now, all we need to know is that Paul, because he was at Corinth, was painfully aware of the damage that false teachers could do to a church. Now, obviously... Not every time you disagree with someone's sermon or some note in the sermon does it become a whole church issue. You may think, for example, that verse 24 should be printed in the Bible and that it enriches and greatly colors everything that we've talked about today. I'd love to know how. I'd love to talk about that after. I think you'd have to work very hard to cause a church rift over something like that. There's a famous quote that floats around in church circles. In the Latin, it's in necessarius unitas, in dubius libertas, in omnibus caritas, or in a sensible language. In necessary things unity, in uncertain things freedom, in everything compassion. People often misattribute this quote to the church father Augustine, but the earliest reference we have to it comes from a Catholic archbishop named Dominus in the 17th century. But the spirit of this Uh, This wording is true. We must strive to be compassionate in our disagreements with one another and be willing to accept differences on things that we must be scripturally uncertain about. But on the necessary things of the gospel, on the message of Christ crucified, on the saving grace that transforms us, on the triune nature of God, on the inerrant message of scripture, these are things we need to have unity in. It's the reason, for example, that the Catholic Archbishop Dominus would consider our church, like all Protestant churches that declare that doctrine of grace, outside the unitas, outside the unity. And it's the reason that 60 years before Dominus said this, Martin Luther stood before a council of church officials who were ready to execute him if he didn't recount his doctrine or recant his doctrine of grace. And there... With all the wisdom of the greater Catholic Church bearing down on him with lethal coercion, Luther finally told them, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. There are things worth fighting over, and there are things worth dying over, and there are things worth splitting the church over. And when events are left to go that far, the result is always painful and regrettable. And so Paul sends his greetings from the church of Corinth, where the divisions and painful splits are going on in earnest. 
And so he warns, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Now, it would be very easy at this point to pick a contemporary figure or preacher that I feel might be distorting scripture and call them out on it. But I'm loath to do that from this position, and quite frankly, I'm not sure there's a point to it. If I say, as a preacher here, that a certain preacher is false, obviously he says he is true, and therefore I am false. And again, it falls to the listener to decide who's right and who's wrong, or if both are wrong. But Paul never intends his followers to be so disarmed of wisdom that they couldn't do that, that they couldn't make that decision. And our church today is equipped with a translated, compiled, easily accessible word of God. It's by the scripture we're given that we're able to judge the preaching and the promises of teachers to be true or false. During the Great Depression, the American South was afflicted with a particular breed of false preachers. They saw farmers with crops blown away and buried in what they called the American Dust Bowl, a big chunk of American land so brutally plowed and poorly farmed for so long that all the ground cover was gone and the wind would whip up big sky-blotting clouds of dust that would uh, bury crops and kill off agriculture in the region completely which will put an already stressed and depressed place into even deeper poverty. Now, during this time, people are terribly desperate for some kind of hope. The spirit moves and kicks up some revival preachers, traveling the land and revitalizing the faith of the people. And then the enemy moves and kicks up hucksters and swindlers and people who saw folks desperate for religious comfort and they put on the trappings of revival crusades and healing tents and did the same thing for their own profit. They'd go to busted little towns with a gifted speaker to give a soulless sermon and then make the pitch, if you give to God, and by God I of course mean me, then you will receive back from God tenfold, no lie. And that's the hook. Not only were they getting the old time religion they wanted, but a sound investment with a solid return just what they needed in such hard times. Now most of us can't imagine what goes on in the heart of someone who could exploit such desperate people in such desperate times. But those were the kind of false teachers that Paul was dealing with as well, and like the Paul and like the American South, the modern church will have to deal with false church or false preachers coming to churches until the day that Jesus comes again. Our best defense is that we have been given the gospel of grace written down in his word. There are any number of ways in which God may bless your life, but only one he promises. The forgiveness of sins, the restoration of right relationship with him for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Christian, beware any gospel that promises more or less than that grace. Paul finishes his warning with an assurance in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now Paul has been calling back to the Old Testament a great deal in these last chapters and he does so again now. Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve have fallen, after they've submitted to the serpent's temptation, God says to the serpent, 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This first, most ancient foreshadowing of the work of Jesus. The devil would cause him a wound, painful, but not victorious. But the wound dealt to the serpent is fatal to crush the head. Now, Christ fulfilled this prophecy as he did all the others in the Old Testament, although some of it is still in fulfillment now. He took the wound dealt by the devil's work, the sin of man. And Paul says here that Christ will soon complete this victory, a reassurance that the Romans will not be doing their work in vain, that their fidelity to the gospel is not in vain. God is working. His plan is good. But more than that, Paul says that the God of peace, our Lord Jesus, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Taken into Christ, into the family of God, we are his body and become part of the instrument of his victory. Revelation paints a picture of the final battle with Christ and his army of saints taking the fight to the enemy of man. Perhaps Paul expected that the Roman church would see that happening in their lifetime. They didn't, but Paul's assurance is not wrapped up in how quickly or exactly when this would happen. So we don't need to be concerned about that timing either. Paul's concern is that the church knows that God is working both against the enemy and with the grace of Christ in believers. And so there is a never-ending well of hope from which we may forever draw. Paul finishes in a reflective benediction on all that he has written before in this epistle. To God who establishes them not just with the gospel, but with my gospel, with Paul's gospel. Now this may be Paul defining the message he brought against those false gospels he was warning against, but there's a note of strong possession here. It's his gospel. When you accept Christ as Lord, you are saved, and henceforth you are in Christ. So in some small way we may claim not not a personal right to praise for Christ's actions, but certainly a right to celebrate. In the same way that Christ is our Savior and his Father is our Maker, his gospel is our gospel. Like Paul, we have a claim to it and a responsibility to steward it and tend it and an accountability before God if we bury it. This gospel, Paul says, is in keeping with the mystery of the old writings now revealed in the coming of Christ. Now, we talked about this a little during, uh, well, a little during last week. We talked about the Hebrew Tanakh, the ancient scriptures, and the promises that were written down there. God had promised that the Gentiles would be saved through a work he accomplished through the Jews. But despite being written on those pages, the truth of this managed to surprise and confuse the world. That is the nature of the mysteries of God. They are hidden until God chooses to unveil them and then they all make sense. God unravels his plans in his time. To the ancient world's Hebrew, the all-powerful God certainly seemed like he was taking his time with all these strange, non-chosen peoples. But to us, This mystery is revealed. God isn't taking his time. All time belongs to him. And his purposes are unfolding even in those situations that might confuse or frighten us. 
Our God is the only God, the only source of wisdom, the only source of life, the only one worthy of our obedience. We love one another because we are his children. And we guard his teachings because they are his word. We take on this gospel of grace because we were saved by it and for it. And now we live it out as our thanks to God. And so Paul finishes his message to the Romans. And for today, the word finishes its message to us with this blessing. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you have prepared the world for your gospel and you prepared your church to take the gospel to the world. We ask that you guard us from the enemy, that you empower us by your spirit to be fitting agents of your gospel in this world. Help us to refresh and express that love for one another with which you have bound your family together. Help us both to to feel that affection in our hearts and to live it out in our actions. And further, Lord, we ask that you equip us, each and every one of us, with the wisdom to read your word, with the insight to receive your understanding through it and the courage to hold to it when challenged by false teachings. We thank you, Father, for all you've given us and for sending your Son to die and rise again. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.